Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Alani. This is episode number nine of the 20 episode Antarctica series, um, which will continue to come out on every Thursday until we just run out of episodes. So there's a lot more coming your way. Today's episode features Clara Bird. She's a PhD student at Oregon State University in beautiful Corvallis, which is the perfect location because she is currently studying gray whale behavior using drones. And the gray whales she studies live in the Pacific Ocean, which, you know, is right outside Oregon's front door. So it's perfect. But before that, she went to Duke University in North Carolina and worked in the Duke Drone Lab. Yes, that's a thing, which is awesome. And through that is how she ended up working with penguins, drones, remote sensing data, and Antarctica. So we start off by talking about her background and getting into the remote sensing field, the Duke Drone Lab, and then dive into her work in Antarctica with whales and penguins. She recently had a paper published from this work, which we talk about in this episode. So the link to that is in the show notes. Um, I had a great time talking to Clara and enjoyed talking about GIS and drone technology and really just generally geeking out about whales and penguins. So I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Enjoy. Yeah, I'm a wetland scientist, so I know nothing about whales or penguins except that I think they're awesome. So I'm excited to talk to you. That's so cool. Yeah, I did. I've done a teensy bit of marsh grass stuff at my old job, helping out folks at the drone level I used to work at, but a tiny piece of my life. <laughs> yeah, we've used drones to do some wetland work down in like in Alabama. I did not, I'm not a drone pilot, but somebody drove the drone and I did all the ground truth thing, um, flew the drone. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. <laughs> it was like, I was like, well, we could have actually just walked this faster, but since it was like, a small area that is only true because of that it would definitely not be true over vast areas yeah yeah we just it, i think it would just publish like a grass density estimation paper mm -hmm. like from drone imagery something or other that okay primary author name is alexandra de giacomo well that was fun for me because like they collected all the data but then it was like she did the model in gis but in like model builder and I was like, I'm a, I was hired as a GIS tech and like a programming person. And they were like, can you turn this into a tool? And I was like, sure. So I just got to like code on it, like the actual like ecology or science. I was like, I mean, yeah. we talked about NDVI and thresholding a lot, but I didn't actually, I was like, okay. That's okay. <laughs> it takes all parts to, do, to yeah. do that. And not everybody's an expert in everything. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I have to look that up because I'm just for my own curiosity. Yeah, yeah, so that, that leads me to my first question, because in something you sent me, you said you worked at the Duke Drone Lab. And first of all, I didn't know there was a drone lab, and that's awesome. Yeah, so I did my undergrad at Duke. Um, and so when I was there, I think like my freshman year, I took like a marine megafauna class with Dave Johnson, who's like who runs that lab. And he was just starting the drone lab, which is just still so crazy to like remember like freshman me. And he's like, we're trying this thing with drones, which now is just like so funny in retrospect because he like had a drone, which now they have like 50 plus drones in the fleet of the lab, which is just like the growth has been exponential. And like I was there for a lot of it, which was super cool. But so he was just starting this lab of like transferring his lab from like whale ecology to more like specifically drones and then expanding it to like a lot of other fields and that was like freshman little baby me saw that was like that's cool and then like did other stuff and tried to get experience and then um Duke the marine lab is like a really cool campus three hours away from main campus with like dorms and full course load available to undergrads so I went there I did like a semester there my junior year and you can do an independent study and I had just taken like fundamentals of GIS and was like the one nerd that really liked it. <laughs> I suppose like everyone I knew in the classroom hated it, but I was like, but this is so cool. And it was taught by Pat Halpin, who like is one of the people that like founded using GIS for marine science and like wrote, was like, I think he's on some of like the first textbooks that came out about like marine spatial planning and GIS. And so he like talked about how he used GIS in all of his research. And I was like, that's so cool. And also the big secret is that like, I definitely should have gotten into coding and programming a lot earlier in my career. I was just like turned off a bit by like 
I don't know, my last high school math class was not my favorite. And I was like, oh no, quantitative, blah. And then like later in life, I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. I got really into it. So I loved GIS. And so then I went to Dave and was like, hey, I know that you've grown the drone lab more. I just learned GIS. I really love like a project where I got to apply GIS. I don't really care what it is, whatever. And he was like, yeah, cool, great. So you're going to count penguins. I was like, what? <laughs> and it was that he went to, he's on the like Palmer LTR in Antarctica. Is one of like the whale people there, but he like was going down. I think 2017 was the first season that they brought drones down there. Um, I think I'm pretty sure I think that's the first year that we have data for. And so they kind of were just like flying over whales, but then they also had these the fixed wing drones, which are like the big ones that look like a bird used for mapping. And they flew those over like two penguin like colony islands just to see what would happen. Like Dave's not a penguin person. No one in the lab was a penguin person, but they flew over with a thermal camera and like a multi-spectral camera and a normal RGB camera. And he kind of just like came back and was like, cool. So that's yours. Like no one at like, he just gave this like junior undergrad who like with no official skill set, this like pile of data. I just, I don't know, I work well with being like shoved into the deep end of things. Like I just was drop kicked, like no, like, <laughs> but it's crazy what I know, like, oh, wow, that was just crazy. Um, but yeah, so he just gave me the data so I had to count it up. What he wanted was an algorithm to automatically count the penguins like from the thermal imagery because they're all these like hot dots. So he was like, we can get these colony counts without like some poor field scientist having to like trudge across these like rocky, freezing cold, icy, snowy conditions like to help make it safer and faster and whatever. So first I had to count them all by hand from the imagery. It was one of the worst weeks of my life because there were like 60,200 or something on the island. And like I got like, I call it temporary carpal tunnel. It's not like an official diagnosis, but like my wrist, I had like a bait, like a muscle, like a tendon that was like twitching in my arm for like a week. But so I counted them all. And then I tried to do this algorithm, which like, I knew nothing. Like I've like I've done other image analysis algorithms since. And I was like, what was I doing? Like I was just like trying stuff throwing things at the wall, like so inexperienced and didn't do it. But that was like my first Antarctic data experience was doing that um, as an undergrad in the drone lab and just like, you know, spent hours every day just trying. And then it worked and it's well funny now is that we're actually, that paper is currently in review. That first thing that I did, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, like I asked people for help and someone was like, was like, well, I could do it for you, but then it wouldn't be your project. I was like, okay so then <laughs> kept doing it by myself um but yeah so I was hugged on to penguins and like I did other things I went and did an REU and learned how to code and then came back knowing python and so like I made it into an actual tool and improved it and then did a senior thesis looking at like the 3d characteristics of the island from the drone imagery because you can get like a 3d model did that for a thesis and then kind of in my senior year was thinking about what to do next. Didn't think I was quite ready for grad school. So I went to Dave and was like, hey, I have a quantitative skill set. I'd like more practice. Hire, like if you have a job, I'd love to work as a tech for you. And that was in like October of my senior year. And he was like, yeah, we might have an opportunity. Didn't say anything, didn't say anything. I was like, whatever, talking to other people. And then in the spring of my senior year, like, oh, I put your name on a grant like put my name down, you know, to hire. So then I got hired, which was just insane. Then he said that he was going to send me down south, like send me to Antarctica, which was, and I was like, no way, like no way does a research tech, not a grad, like I didn't think there was any way that that was possible. Um, but yeah, so then I started working for Dave, did penguin stuff, um, unfortunately moved to Beaufort, North Carolina, where the Marine Lab is two weeks before Hurricane Florence. So was there for two weeks and then was back in Michigan for two weeks because I evacuated all the way home and then came back. And I will never forget the first lab meeting that we were all back. And we, Dave sends like a lot of different teams to Antarctica. So he'll go and then people will go 
Some people go on passenger cruise ships, on the NSF ship, someone goes to Palmer, all these different teams that are rotating. And so our lab manager was like, okay, let's talk about like who's going where, what per like what do we need to get organized? Because this was like late October, I think. And Dave was like, yeah, first team down is Casey and Clara. And like I was shocked. Everyone in the room was like, oh my God, she gets to go. And then I was like, oh my God, I get to go. And it was like, you didn't know. And like that's I found out with the rest of the lab that I got to go, which was crazy. So I went with a PhD student, PhD, well, I guess candidate now, PhD candidate, Casey Brillick, who's in his, now he's in his fifth year. He was a third year at the time. Um, who's going to collect drone imagery of humpback whales on a passenger cruise ship from One Ocean, um, which is a passenger cruise ship company that goes down there. And they let they had this kind of partnership to like let scientists come and then collect their data and give talks to the passengers. And so, and I was just gonna go be like the drone launch pad, the whole like, cause we launch and recover it from the Zodiac, from the small inflatable boat. So I held it over my head and then caught it um, to help and help with data collection. So we went in December of 2018 for just about a month, if you could add the travel and the whatever, which was crazy. Um, but yeah, so we got to go, we were on this cruise ship and um, yeah, saw humpbacks and collected drone data and biopsy samples and that kind of working with Casey on in the fields and then kind of offering to help him. Cause that was also cool about my job was that I had a lot of freedom to like, just kind of, help on projects I wanted to help and to do my own projects. It was very like loosely structured. So um, I helped Casey a lot and he does photogrammetry, which got me down this like whole rabbit hole that I'm in now of photogrammetry, the science of measuring things from images. And so in our case, it's drone images. So it's pretty cool to think about like, how big is a whale is a super basic question, but like no one like, without killing it, there's no good way to do it. You know, I love, I do outreach with like little kids, like fourth and fifth grades. I'm like, how would you measure a whale? And they're like, throw a measuring tape at it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, like there's no, which is so crazy that we can, like we can actually measure individual whales and measure how fat they are. Cause that's what we're really worried about is, um, to know like that they're gaining weight and kind of studying body condition from that perspective. So that got me down this whole world where I joke that I spent a year as a research tech, mostly like studying whales, but I was studying like image metadata. Like I was not studying biology or ecology or any actual like animal science. It was really just studying the images and like how drones record altitude and how that compare like the different methods to do it and all this like software programming of helping with photogrammetry and then I did do some cool work um looking at from the images of the drone you can see their scars a lot more a lot more clearly a lot better in a lot greater detail from different perspective than you can from the side so I wrote another algorithm that isolates the scars and calculates like the percent area cover um on their backs that's covered in scars and then compared humpback whales in California to those in Antarctica and looked at scarring rates. So that was a really cool kind of independent project that I got to do just cause I was the one that was like, they were like, I had to do the photo ID. And so, but staring at the photos, you're like, oh, that's an interesting pattern of noticing that scarring like looked a little, it looked like the California whales just had more scars. And then I got to like, just do that and got to help people. Um, yeah, and so then, but through the Antarctic data just kind of helped looking at the humpbacks and the minkies. And I've looked at drone images of a lot of different whales. Not all of them I've actually seen in person, um, but yeah. And so the photogrammetry thing has then worked out so well because now I work with Lee Torres at OSU who doing drone, more drone stuff. So I do behavioral ecology and body condition of gray whales, um, which is what I'm doing now. So it all, it seems like it got, like I planned it out really well. Like the way that it was just like, did this and then got the job and then that did this, well, like shot in the dark, <laughs> like did not see that. You know, I just got so lucky that everything worked and like built on itself well enough and the timing worked out, but yeah. Yeah, about your last point, um, 
I, I find that that's really common if everybody I've talked to is like, yeah, it looks like I had a plan. I had no plan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I was like, I hoped I was hoping and like, I hoped that it would all work out, but I had no, I don't know. I was just thinking about this the other day of it was, there was this waiting process of to see, I was a master's student and then we got the funding that could let me officially become a PhD student. Um, but just like think, so it's still kind of crazy to me to like say I'm a PhD student. Like that's a big, like I, when I was nine is when I like realized this was a career option. And like my dream was always to get my PhD. Weirdly like not the like afterwards part, just the like getting the PhD was the like childhood dreams of like be in it now is crazy. Um, but yeah, like I don't, senior year of college, I was convinced it was going to take me a decade to get into a PhD program. Like I like had the worst, like crazy. I'm like, this is not going to work. Nothing's going to work out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it did. And now you're studying whales from drone imagery and that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Now it all worked out. I love how, uh, <laughs> your boss at the drone lab was like, here's some data, have fun, good luck, see you later. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Well, it's all just like, and that's like, no one else even like did, like they, like the trust and that, uh, that's very much kind of how, like the drone lab is like that in a lot of ways where a lot of people just get like thrown data, but it's just so crazy to me still. Like this, they didn't know me, this undergrad they didn't know. And it's like here, take it but yeah absolutely yeah. crazy but I guess it's one of the benefits of like drone imagery which is this what I tell like people that I mentor now with like coding and things like that's the great thing like as long as you have backups what's the worst you can do like it's not I don't know like it's not like a wet lab experiment right where like you put the wrong thing and then you ruin like six months of work or you kill your cells or something goes wrong like you just back up your data have a hard drive you don't touch and then the rest of it you just try and if it goes wrong that's fine yeah that's what I was gonna say I was like well as long as you there's like a copy stored somewhere that nobody's gonna mess with like you what's the worst you could do nothing really exactly. like exactly. go play it's like a very like safe environment to like learn how to do something and like yeah. probably pretty low risk for the professor person because like I mean you were an undergrad at the time so if it didn't work well it just didn't work <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah exactly yeah. yeah it's such it was such a cool like learning experience like you could if you did it right you could get it published which now three years later we're work we're getting there that's pretty um, quick though three years yeah yeah it's been mostly like the project itself was done pretty early and it's just been mostly of like timing of like getting at like edits like it's mm -hmm. just been like manuscript preparation for a lot longer than probably it took to do the analysis itself it's just been you know, I wasn't like, yeah, now I'm in grad school and like have a million other things to do, but yeah, it's super cool. And there's been a lot of cool, like other undergrads, um, like after me that have had similar things of someone just like threw data at them and then mm -hmm. worked out well. It's super cool. Yeah, that's great. I also think that, um, that's awesome that you were able to figure out how to count the penguins from drone imagery. I mean, not you manually counting them because I know that was probably tedious, but like figuring out how to like, you know, make it do it on its own, whatever the word for that is, um, because that could be so helpful. Like, I don't know if a person going and counting or a drone is more disruptive. Like, I, I don't know if the penguins even noticed the drone. Like, I have no idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that just seems like a really way, like a way, especially to reach places that are maybe like way harder to walk to in some yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, it's super, yeah, it's really cool. And it's also, I think like you could get more time points, which is like, it's just tricky. I was like, like, I'm not a penguin ecologist at all. Like I don't actually do this, but of like, you know, normally they could visit the island and once, but then doing the counts could take a really long time. I mean, what this island, one of them has like 60,000 plus penguins. Like that's a lot of ground to cover. So, but throughout a season, if you could just throw a drone in the air and get those that those images over and over again, you could get more time points. Um, and there's also the point, I mean, they have all the systems of like how to check human accuracy, but like using an algorithm is actually a way, like even if the algorithm has error, it'll have the same error every time. So in some ways for time series work, it could be considered beneficial. Um, 
yeah and it's also just cool like showing it's a cool method that we did where we use penguin guano their poop is like really reflective and near infrared and like ndvi which i guess i mean makes sense with the pinkish color um but so we actually like isolate their little colony groups first in the NDVI and then overlap with the thermal and like cookie cutter the thermal out so that then it's just contained, which is a cool method of like combining different kinds of like multi-spectral imagery to get these counts that that is um, relatively new too. So yeah, all of like the drone technology in GIS is so powerful. There's like almost endless things you can do. Yeah. Yeah, so many things, too many things. And drones are just like, they're going so fast. Like, I have no idea what it's going to look like in another five years. No, yeah. like, it's going to be crazy. Even now, like, the cameras are getting better. The battery life is getting longer. Yeah, it's super cool stuff. Yeah. A friend of mine's professor, and he said he's had some drone imagery with a camera on it that, or the camera on the drone that did something like centimeter accuracy. And I was like, I could probably ID plants with that imagery. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have centimeter accuracy for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's like crazy. And it's, and it's crazy. It's also, I'm really, I really enjoy being part of it now where it is, where especially in the world of like whale photogrammetry, like measuring the whales from the imagery, it's, we've like hit this point where everyone was really excited about it and everyone did it, like ran around and developed their own methods. But it's a cool point where now, the like relatively small number of people that do it are kind of we're taking a minute to stop and like really think about like standardizing our methods and like to be part of the process of realizing okay this technology is developing really fast it's evolving really fast let's hit pause for a minute um and kind of think about how we assess error and like what we should all report in our papers and how we do it and think about it and slow down for a minute before we start running ahead because there's not that many of us there's not that many populations of whales like at some point we're going to want to be able to compare and like combine our data and if we don't step back and check about how we do it um it's going to get really messy in like 10 years down the road so that's been cool to be a part of is kind of thinking about that of stepping back and thinking about how we do it and not just like running around with this cool toy but being really thorough it's been fun. Yeah, it will be really cool to see where the technology goes, even just five years down the road, because it's so new. It's like, it's already blowing my mind. It's only been around for like, I don't know how exactly when this all uh, started, but it's not been around that long. Not really. It's, it's really no. new. No, I mean, like drones and like whales is like five years ish, four or five years. Um. I would love to hear about your time in Antarctica and like the journey there, all, all the kind of things that happened to you. Like, I would love to just hear about it. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Um, definitely, definitely one of the best months of my life, like so far, um, have incredible, it's sometimes, especially now, being in you know pandemic times COVID times of like thinking about the fact that there was a time in my life when I was like in Antarctica it seems like fake like I'm just like these are I don't know implanted memories or something <laughs> like it's very weird to be like it's been I guess it'll be two years ago in a couple months um but yeah it was really crazy the prep time was very intense of like the couple I guess we started preparing like late October and then November was when it started ramping up because we left very early December and it was, I had to learn how to like catch the drone, um, which the drone, the drone that we use is, it's one that was built like in-house by the engineer at the Duke Drone Lab. Um, so it's, it's pretty tall, but I was definitely a little bit freaked out by it. Um, but so we practiced on land a lot and then kind of making sure that we had the plan done and then like the travel documents and the whatever and the preparing to do this and then like packing, just the mentality of like packing and knowing that if you forget something, that's it, you don't have it, is just so stressful. Um, and something that now, like my field work now is like super local, like it's out of Newport, Oregon. I just drive an hour and then we're on the boat. And if the drone breaks, we can like, replace the drone or fix it overnight like it's a very different kind of 
situ environment. Um, but yeah, so that was like a month of just being very stressed about like making sure we had absolutely everything we could think of. I have pictures of like, we laid out all the different like connectors and plugs and adapters and chargers like on the floor to take a picture of to make sure we had our checklist. Um, so that preparation was crazy. And also like making sure that we had done like projects and things for other people before you left and like fell off the face of the earth for a month. Um, but yeah, and then to fly, we did four flight, four flights, four or five flights. We did, we flew out of New Bern, North Carolina. So we had like New Bern, Charlotte, New Bern, Charlotte, Charlotte, Miami, Miami, Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires. Okay. Four flights. We did four flights but it was over like three days, I wanna say, cause there was a travel down to Buenos Aires and then we had a day there. And then the next day we flew to, we flew to Ushuaia, which is the Southern tip of Argentina where like that's the little town that all of the like cruise ships dock at. And then we were in Ushuaia for like a, a day or two and then we boarded the ship um, and then yeah, which so that trip down was just that was a crazy amount of travel and there were some adventures of um, needing to get forms signed and things that led to a lot of miles of airport covered um, <laughs> by us, which was pretty crazy, but then it was super cool to like have time to explore Buenos Aires and then meet all of the we were on this passenger cruise ship so we were by the time we were traveling to Ushuaia and hanging out there in the hotel, we were with like the expedition staff, the like guides who were also going to be boarding the ship to help. So that was really cool. Just like meet people and hear about their experience. And there was a team from the group Oceanides, which does a lot of like penguin surveys um, who were also on the ship. So that was cool to have like other science friends. Um, and then the ship we actually, it was funny, we did two like back-to-back -back trips. So we went down to the peninsula, were there for like five days, turned around, came back, so, like passengers left, new group came on and then we did that all again. So it was funny cause like, I was only actually in Antarctica itself for like 10-ish days maybe, but I crossed the Drake Passage four times, <laughs> which was just really funny, like, oh, okay was good confirmation that I don't get very seasick. I was like, after that, I was like, okay, I think I'm okay. Um, but yeah, so we were going, we gave presentations to the passengers on what we were doing and like chatted with them, which was fun. Um, and then when they would kind of do their like daily excursions, we would get our, get out on boat and go and collect data. Um, yeah. And then we would do that and come back and then process data and it was such an it was an odd experience kind of being on a cruise ship where you're like charging drone batteries in your room and like don't really have lab space and, um yeah it was very very odd but um really wonderful we got some really really cool days and it was also the, that was actually the first time I saw a whale lie like like an actual whale like a not well I guess I saw like a beluga whale in Chicago at the aquarium but like <laughs> not like a like a humpback like a big baleen whale and it was just this funny the first day we actually got two humpbacks that just circled us which was and then you saw the drone image and you're like oh that was a big whale like you really realize that like when you're on that small boat and you're like you know it's big but then you look at the drone image and you're like oh <laughs> that's a really big whale <laughs> that was like under our boat right next to us um but this crazy memory of like me like trying to get the photo id shot like externally be very professional and like aware that like the passengers were nearby and be like okay science professional in the field and the internal model like i'm like oh my god oh my god oh my god it's whales 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 <laughs> like screaming internally for the next year like being like yes that is the first whale we've like you know, trying to be professional on the outside, which was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, so that was crazy. And we got some really cool experiences. And I got to see my study species, the Adelie penguin. That was a big highlight, unrelated to what we were there to do. But I did get to see it. And that was very exciting. They're very cute. 
they're very cute they're very loud and they smell so bad yeah um, which i've been warned of the smell i hadn't thought about like how loud like hundreds of penguins would be when they like all start mm-hmm. yelling at the same time um but yeah it was really really cool and really magical and i mean even my work now like just being on a small boat next to a whale is just like a it doesn't for me it doesn't get more unreal than that that would be very strange because <laughs> i'm sure you know the whale's bigger than the boat at least bigger than those zodiacs oh yeah 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 uh-huh, like double the length yeah pretty much which is just and like it's just so weird that you don't realize it like you see it's dorsal and you're like that's a big whale but then you look at the images they're like there was one point it was cert they two were circling us and then Casey was like oh that one just went underneath the boat you're like oh good (laughs) you're both like not scared and a little scared at the same time really and it really is was cool to have like the live you know you can see what the drone sees live on the from the controller which was really cool to be able to like like oh it's live watch these giant whales be like feet away from you yeah that's kind of surreal actually like seeing it and also like seeing what the drone sees would be very strange yeah yeah it's yeah yeah. it's so weird and especially with uh, not antarctic but like well actually with the antarctic too we got to see them bubble net feeding what is that common down there but um humpback whales do this form of um, foraging on krill will where they'll blow bubbles in a spiral starting at depth and they basically form a net of bubbles it's a very well named <laughs> behavior to trap the krill kind of in the middle of this bubble net and then they'll come through and like with their mouth they're huge huge like you know bait like everything open take a huge and basically engulf like the middle of the net and eat all that krill um which from the like the drone imagery is like mind-blowing to see these perfect spirals because sometimes they'll do it in groups too so it'll be two spirals which is actually crazy the ones up in alaska they'll do it like 15 whales together which like that blows my mind like that many huge whales so close together in the antarctic they do it in smaller groups um we saw them doing it in pairs and like I think the biggest group was like four or five whales um but I'd been seeing the pictures like from like I remember when the drone lab got its first picture of a bubble net like everyone was losing it like they got like you know sent the image to us like from the ship and like it was a big it was a really exciting thing to see from that perspective but so seeing it from above I was really excited to see it in person but I never thought about like what it would look like from the boat, which is it's just like bubbles popping at the surface and then like whale, um, which was just really, that was really cool to see like with like from the boat view and then also look at the drone image and just see like that, this whale with its huge mouth open. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. To this day, oh. that video is like, uh, you want to like nail outreach and like make all the kids think you're the coolest person ever you show them that video and it's a winner for sure uh and all the wildlife biologists too <laughs> like yeah. I, I mean i'm not a whale biologist but i'm just like whales are awesome and i had no idea this was a thing and now immediately when we're done talking i'm gonna go youtube it <laughs> see if there's video <laughs> there's got to be i'm sure <laughs> yeah oh for sure it yeah and it's just there was a day where we were in this bay and there were probably like like 20 whales like spread out doing like there were bubble nets just popping up everywhere and it was just like you there had to be just like an incredible amount of krill wherever we were we found this and it was just like but then you get to the point where you're stressed because you're like I want to get on like you know get over as many whales as possible um but yeah that was super cool um yeah and again very very surreal especially just like these like just bubbles like at the surface like oh what's that and you realize like that's the spiral but it's from the side yeah you can only see part of it because you know you're at the water surface yeah well it's just like i still like i know like i know that whales do this and i see i've looked at thousands hundreds of thousands of images but it's still just like these 
things are so big, but they're so flexible and maneuverable in the water, especially humpbacks with their giant, their pectoral fins are so long and they're so mm -hmm. like, it's just like how it's such a massive animal and it's doing this behavior. It's just, yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, that is really cool. I don't have a better word for it than that, but I'm very <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've seen humpbacks in a few different places, but you know, just doing the normal up and down, just, yeah. you know, saying hi. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so cool. Well, it sounds like your experience in Antarctica. Um, I don't know which happened first. Did it prepare you for the the research you're doing now, or did the research you're doing now sort of spawn out of that experience, or is it um, neither? I'd say both. I think it was both. I mean, that was like my first, especially like in the in marine mammals, it's like having fieldwork experience, doing marine mammal work is like a really big, it's a really important thing to have. Like it's a really helpful like experience and like CV item of like, I have done marine mammal work, um, which just makes it extra cool, I guess. That like I got that experience that Dave let me go because that really helped me like get this experience experience and like feel comfortable um on the zodiac around the whales but yeah so that was it helped prepare me a lot like that's where I learned how to take photo id images and you know was doing drone work and you know got really comfortable being a drone launch pad <laughs> which I still do now um but it also was a thing where I don't know I in undergrad never like I was never one of the people that was like, I'm going to study whales. Like I wasn't necessarily like a super passionate whale nerd. I obviously thought they were super cool. Um, but then, yeah, I don't, if I hadn't had that experience, which like that experience kind of got me then, like that's why I was working on photogrammetry stuff. Cause I helped collect that data and was just interested. And it kind of worked to like, that required a lot of programming, which I also really loved doing. Um, but yeah, I don't know that I would be studying whales if I hadn't done that step first, both because then I wouldn't know that I loved it. And I also wouldn't have had like any experience to say I can do this. Yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah, how it would be both then. Yeah. yeah. So what is, you're studying gray whales. So can you tell me just a little bit about your work now? Cause now I'm just curious. Cause I want to yeah. know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I study the Pacific coast feeding group of gray whales, which is this really cool group of gray whales that most of the eastern north pacific population of gray whales they breed in baja mexico kind of famously in the lagoons and then they migrate all the way north to alaska to feed every summer that's their typical feeding ground there's like over twenty thousand gray whales and they're this like big success story of recovery post whaling and yeah so now they're off but there's this group of like we'll say about 300-ish, 200 to 300 gray whales that they don't go all the way up to Alaska. They stop to feed off the coast of the Pacific Northwest for reasons that we don't actually know. Um, so they'll forage like off Northern California, Oregon, Washington, um, Southern British Columbia, basically. And we don't actually like know why. We My lab has been studying them since 2016 2015 2016 um and we have this catalog now and like we know like there's some whales that we see every year like they're named in our catalog and actually the cascadia research collective has been studying them for longer and has them id'd and has been seeing them so there's been whales that have been coming to this like that have been part of the pacific feeding group for decades but like we don't know if if like all the whales are like if they always come back or if there's some that some years go to Alaska and some years don't, we don't know. Um, but yeah, there's like, but our lab has our little four-year catalog and we have like scarlet and buttons and <laughs> Soleil the whale, like all these named whales that we know and we see, which is also super cool for whale research, to like know them so well and to actually be able to look at like individualization, um, which is something that we weren't doing in the Antarctic. But yeah, so they've been flying the drone for years and they've used the body condition data, but they actually, they record video instead of taking still images. And so they, my advisor wanted someone to come in and kind of look at the behavior from these video recordings. 
And so I, I mean, I'm continuing the body condition work and obviously with like all my photogrammetry background kind of continuing that side of things, but also then watching these years and years of video, which I'm mildly terrified of how long that might take me. Um, but watching these and we have this ethogram, which is like a list of standardized list of behaviors that we expect to see from like a little kind of pilot study that my advisor did, um, which includes a lot of different foraging behaviors, which is what makes gray whales kind of special or different from like the more common or the more well-known baleen whales, like the humpbacks, the minkies, blue whales, um, the rorqual whales that do that big lunge feeding and the bubble net feeding, gray whales feed a little bit differently. They, they're one that like really surprised me or that I thought was one of the weirdest ones is they do benthic feeding. So they'll dive down and they drag their head along the sea floor and suction up the like mud and sand. Again, this is like a 40 foot whale diving down and like dragging its head and they suction up this like muddy sand and then they push out, they filter out all the mud and sand and they keep the like critters, the amphipods and crustaceans from the sand. They're like a 40 foot sea Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like, exactly. It. Well, and they do, and there's some super cool studies that have done like mapping of the seafloor right after where they see these pits, like they excavate <laughs> pits and like these shapes of the patterns of like sometimes the pits are like all in a line or sometimes it kind of looks like a flower these like giant excavations which is also so I mean like obviously when a whale like lunt takes krill out of like just the water column that has an effect but like the effect of like a bait like excavating the seafloor like that's like a big like that affects the community ecology of whatever's living down there even if you weren't eaten yeah, totally. It'd be interesting and off topic from maybe the whales themselves, but somebody that's like a benthic ecologist to figure out like, it's got to set back some kind of succession, you know? Yeah, there's some cool studies looking at that of like what then moves into the pits or like how that then like, are there some of the prey that may have like not been eaten, but they're then like injured and then available for someone else to eat. It's like this whole kind of thing all because of this... <laughs> Sea room, <laughs> that was the first thing I thought of. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, but yeah, but then so they do that, which is crazy. But then they also will like feed at the surface where they swim on their side, and I call it pack manning because I cannot think of a better word. Because when you look at the video from the drone, their mouth is just like they're chomping, like they're taking bites out of the water, they look. I can't unsee Pac-Man. That's all I see. And like eat, you know, feeding on whatever is in the water. And so they do that. And so they have like different feeding behaviors. Um, and we can actually, but what's cool is that with the drone, we can actually see it a lot better than if you were on the boat, you can't, like you can tell when they're benthic feeding because this is also crazy. They feed in really shallow coastal water which is great for my research because again, we can like take our Zodiac out for the day, find a bunch of whales, like don't have to go anywhere crazy. But sometimes we wonder like, I like depth has to be a limitation because sometimes like their fluke, their tail is sticking out of the wall. Like they're, they're taller than the water is deep, which is just like, how is a whale doing this? It's just, yeah, it's so cool. Um, but so you could see, it's called sharking when you like see their fluke, their tail, kind of like a corner coming out of the water or whatever, when they're like, they're also head standing or on their head benthic feeding. Um, and so from the boat, you can kind of see that, but you can't really say how long it's going. You have like, you have no real idea what's going on. And all of a sudden from the drone you do, and you can see it in, great detail and because they feed in shallow water you can actually like tell what they're doing even if they have kind of um even if they did dive down um so we can do such like so cool of a confirming or checking of like is there a habitat type associated with the behavior are they always benthic feeding in muddy bottom are they always surface feeding in a kelp in an area with rocky reef and kelp 
we can look at patterns throughout the seasons because we have four years now we're going to collect more um we can also i'm most excited about individualization right like we know that we've seen buttons and scarlet and soleil and actually looking at like does buttons have a favorite way to forage like do whales have this preference or is it dependent on what's there or what's available um and then also kind of tying these behaviors to their body condition are there behaviors that are linked to all the whales in the best body condition or not um which is really important because of this the gray whales on the west coast of the u.s have the unusual mortality event it's been going since 2018 i believe 2018 or 2019 um where they a lot have been stranding and all the reports say they're really skinny, they're emaciated, which suggests obviously poor body condition, um, which we it's now we can fly over them and assess it when they're alive and kind of look at trends. Um, but yeah, so that's not Antarctic related, but yeah. That's no, really that's cool. still awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, first of all, I've never seen a gray whale, but these, yeah. they sound uh, hilarious and adorable. <laughs> um, and. Also, how does one, like, what do you look for when you're trying to assess body condition? Is it like width or something, or is there other things? <laughs> that's a that's actually a great question. Funnily enough, it's a topic of a project that I'm working on with um, my friend who I went to Antarctica with, because his whole PhD is very body condition focused and photogrammetry. But yes, essentially we are, we're looking at width or their girth um, in different ways. So my lab developed a method that looks at surface area from like the area between the head and the tail. Cause that's where you're assuming that they're like gaining and losing weight relative to their body condition versus like the head, they're not really going to be gaining mass or not. Um, and so it's like the surface area normalized by the length um which that normalization is similar to how bmi works in humans which regardless of how useful bmi actually is for humans but the idea of being able to com compare body condition across lengths or like a whale isn't just doesn't have a bigger surface area because it's longer like it's actually looking at um, their body condition so because of with that metric which is called body area index we can compare adults and calves and um all the whales. So that's what we use. Other people try to estimate volume. Some were test and what we're testing all these different things of maybe it's better to just like pick the fattest width of the whale. We don't, but yeah, it's all around width and girth and um, how fat they are. Yeah, I was just curious, or my dog is laying here all stretched out and I can see all of her ribs, you know, cause she's yeah. pretty lean. And uh, I was like, oh, she has, you know, like a waist and she's very like slick. And I was mm -hmm. like, see if yeah. she was like fatter, she'd be, you know, rotund. <laughs> so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Humpbacks are blimps. Like they're <laughs> just little, they're just little, well, they're not little, but they're blimps. Um, yeah. And yeah, and that is, there's some gray whales that we've seen super skinny where you actually, you kind of can see their skeletal structure starting to show Um which is not, that's when like, well, that's one of the things like you can see that from the boat. And like, if you can tell that a whale is in bad body condition, just like from its surfacing, that's a really bad sign. Um, but yeah. yeah. How, so I have another question. How do you ID a gray whale? Because like, I know humpbacks, it's on the bottom of the tail, like the underneath. And then, you know, some things have spots and it's the spot pattern. So, but what is it for gray whales? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, gray whales, we can use the, the fluke, the tail, um, like with humpbacks. Um, humpbacks are also really known for their dorsal fin, that little fin on their back. Um, gray whales don't have like a dorsal fin. They have dorsal notches. It's kind of more like bumps. Um, but we do use similar methods of like the photo ID image, which is the image of the side of the whale, which you want to like catch it right when it's kind of arching out of the water. And so we do match up markings, um, skin coloration patterns. It's gray whales. Um, they look pretty, this is not a scientific word, but they look pretty splotchy. Like they have like this gray kind of mottled skin that can be, is pretty tricky to do photo ID. Um, and I've like done photo ID of blue whales and humpbacks and minkies and um, gray whales that kind of fall in like the, I'd say maybe the middle of that spectrum uh, from easiest to hardest to ID. 
but yeah, so we have markings and then we'll compare it to these. We try and get like images of the fluke if possible and the left side and the right side. And then we compare them. But yeah, it's a lot of staring at these images and you start kind of like going cross-eyed and compare like, is that splotch look like that splotch from last year? But maybe like imagine that now time has passed. So that's why there's that other thing covering it. Or I don't, you just sound so really, it's like ridiculous, especially like with the Antarctic stuff we got back and then we weren't in the same place. We were trying to like finish up photo ID of things or of, you know, a previous cruise. And I'm on the phone with my friend. I'm like, if you look at image 427 from this day, doesn't that spot on that one corner of the fluke look like the spot on that whale from image 1000? Like, like, what is happening? Like just like these ridiculous things Like you take, obviously it's very serious, but you just listen to yourself. And you're like, oh no, like what a weird life that we lead. Uh, I think that conversation you have with your friend is just like, this is how scientists talk to each other about things. And splotchy is totally a technical term. <laughs> it's like, I've had these conversations about like our plot photos. And I'm like, is that one green line that's kind of pixely, kind of under <laughs> these other green lines? Is that that species? Or do you think it's just something else? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's exactly it. And it was just, it's so, it's especially funny. Well, I guess now we're all like it was Zoom and remote, but like we're in person, you could be pointing at things, but instead you're trying to like verbally describe to someone over the phone, the like part of the picture that you're talking about. Um, but yeah, so gray whales, it's similar to the idea of the other animals. It's just, they, they tend to have like more markings and patterns on their skin. So it can be a little bit tricky at times. Um, but yeah, basically any marking they have, we'll take advantage of and try and use it for an ID. Yeah, that's cool. I always find that kind of stuff so fascinating because, you know, I've, my background's in birds and like, unless it's got some sort of damage or a band on it, they all look the same if they're, you know, yeah, yeah. And like every killdeer looks the same unless it's injured or banded, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, unique identifiers there usually. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool. What do you want to do? I don't know how long you have left for your PhD, but um, afterwards, you know, what do you what do you think you'd like to do? Do you want to keep doing whale stuff or other animals or all? Um, or I I have four years left, so I'm a second year, so I have a good a good bit to go. Um, I don't entirely know. I think probably I'd like to keep doing whale stuff at least now. I don't know. Maybe by the end of my PhD, I'll have a very different outlook on all of this. Um, but yeah, whale stuff, and I do love research, not entirely sure if I want to stay kind of in academia, but in research, and also I'm interested in kind of seeing how this, the drone world evolves and plays out, and maybe I'll just help people apply drones to what they're studying. Yeah, it could be a totally different world when you're done with your PhD. Yeah, what yeah. Like. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always just curious, like what people want to do, like as the next step, even though yeah. you know, it might just happen to you, like everything else has happened, you know, some yeah. opportunities <laughs> come along. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I could try and make a plan, but it's probably going to be totally different. Yeah. But. I'm the same way. I, so I'm just curious. If someone was like, what do you want to do in five years? I'm like, I don't know. Have a job, play with my dog, buy dog food. Yeah. <laughs> be employed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, keep, yeah, keep getting to go look at whales. That'd be fun. <laughs> the thing that's cool about your, like, skill set is that drones can be used to do so many things. Like, you're not really limited to, like, a study area necessarily no. or a study species. Like, yeah, you could just go in any direction, really. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, pretty lucky. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know, stick with whales or maybe go switch whale species and go study something else behavior. I'm sure whatever it is, will be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I know this was supposed to be about Antarctica. <laughs> but you know, the point of the podcast though, is to like, you know, STEM often feels like it's up on a shelf somewhere and untouchable. Yeah. Right. And so it's yeah. about the people and the work they do and just like conversation and making it relatable. So like, yeah, we talked about Antarctica, but also like that led you to do this other cool stuff too. And yeah, it's all yeah. part of who you are. So yeah, 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 yeah. All crazy. All mm -hmm. none of it planned. Unless I'm trying to seem really put together and then yes, it was all perfectly <laughs> planned. Crazy, crazy world of science and undergrad. I don't know. And if, and it was like, 
the other thing I always try and emphasize is talking about science is like how cool like non-science stuff I've gotten to do or like I did so much theater in college like doing arts and people can still do art and there were so many like people that like artists and residents in Antarctica and doing that component and that's what's actually really cool about the drone imagery too is like we like have our art from our data and like images to use and it's so cool and yeah and like some one of the passengers like took one of our images and then made like a like a print of it or like a yeah sketches and yeah it's so cool to see what people did when they saw the images that we got yeah that's cool yeah i think that um nature is art on its own but then also you know science and art don't have to be in different you know corners they can all be no. working together yeah and they should be and even if it's not related, i my favorite kind of advice I've ever gotten was my REU mentor, which is like the one weird research piece I haven't mentioned was I did like a, a quick summer of remote sensing and ocean color analysis related to not what I do now, but that was how I learned to code was by like analyzing satellite imagery in Python. Um, but that my advisor is also a jazz trombonist on the side which is one of my favorite things. And it was so cool because I I had this big thing like in heights, like I had been doing choir and musical theater since like fourth grade and loved it. And then in high school was convinced I would have to give it up to like do science in college and like sobbed when I did my last show. And then that's funny looking back on it because then I was in a musical theater group in college and probably did more theater than I'd ever done before. Um, but my advisor, had such a cool perspective of saying like to be a good scientist you have to like let yourself be creative or do something else like you'll be a better scientist because you took the time out of your day to go do not science and like whatever form of art that is and that was just so I hadn't thought of it that way and that was so cool and made me feel better about the hours I had spent doing theater with my friends yeah instead. totally <laughs> and also just like taking that break it's like a reset button a lot of times if you're yeah. like stuck in a problem or whatever you know it's like why ideas come to people when they're like doing rote tasks like the dishes or showering or whatever you know because your mind yeah. not thinking about it and it just like it's churning in the background and I feel like yeah. having whatever outlet is helpful too yeah for sure for mm -hmm. sure yeah I talked to someone earlier so her episode will actually come out before yours just because it's order of operations yeah. where she is part of a um, theater group and they were like the group was taking children's books and turning them into plays and then taking them to schools in California Ooh. and so they did that and then they like developed this sort of like traveling program doing sort of science communication in schools following that like same model and I was like that's brilliant and that's you know, so she has like biochemistry background and a theater background and like she combined yeah. them both. And I just think that was fascinating. Like, yeah, yeah. They the same. That is so cool. Well, that is also the thing of like, which I also, I always hate to say that like doing art makes you a better scientist as if like then art doesn't have importance on its own. Like I always have that weird, but like it does, like it, you know, makes me a better scientist, but like doing art was like, forensics and like theater when I was a kid like we had teachers and in high school that were like I can like point out every person who has done theater or public speaking thing because then when they give presentations they're just like ahead of the game of like like pop like presenting at conferences doesn't get to me as much because I just like memorize my story the way I would a script and then kind of go into performance mode or like outreach with kids and talking to them about it and it is that's so that's such a cool story of doing turning the kids books into plays and then doing outreach that's so cool yeah it was really fascinating and I I have no sort of like performance art experience yeah. <laughs> I was I mean but I, I was in band but I wouldn't have to like you know there's a group it's and we're all wearing the same uniform you know what I mean like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of individualism to it. And so I was like yeah. an anonymous flute player, you know. You played the flute? Sorry, this yeah. is way off topic. I used to play the flute. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I loved being in band, but I loved it because I was with my friends and we were doing this thing and, you know, all yeah. the other things. 
But yeah, that didn't help me at all when I ever had to do presentations in college. I'm like, it's just me. Where's my buddies? <laughs> I'm really not good at that type of thing. Oh. Yeah, well, so it's been so nice to meet you. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Of course. Hey, all it's Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. So here is where you can find us. You can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. Um, there's no Twitter page for the podcast because I didn't want to manage a bunch of Twitters. So since the podcast is an extension of me, find the podcast on Twitter at Flying Cypress, which is me, Rachel Galani. Also, if you're on Facebook, you can find the podcast at Storytellers of STEM on Facebook, STEM with two M's. Um, everything we talk about, I will be shared in the Facebook page and also on Twitter, like I said. So go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And yeah, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy.